This episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash africantech. With over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, or MP3 player. In 2010, Michael Fletcher assumed responsibility for overseeing operations and new business development for California-based wireless systems company Ruckus Wireless here on the African continent. In a career spanning 23 years, Michael has helped establish new businesses, penetrate new markets, and manage sales teams for companies like Motorola, Works, Belkin, and of course Ruckus. These days, Michael and his team at Ruckus are working hard to increase the company's partner footprint across Africa to further exploit new business opportunities. This is African Tech Conversations. Uh, think as far back as you can. So three years old, four years old, five years old. Uh, what game did you like to play? And then just one, like a game, like a kid's game. What were you playing? Well, going back uh, to when I was like about three years old, um, probably uh, go-karting. So we lived on a pretty steep hill. And anything that was um, very unaerodynamic and unstable, like box carts, chopper bicycles, we used to uh, use those and go down pretty steep hills without helmets, of course. And who did you play with? Um, it was a whole sort of gang of us in the neighborhood. And those whose parents would allow them to come out again, we used to be able to stay in the group. Those that lost teeth or broke bones weren't allowed to do it again. Natural selection. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. And uh, where, where did you play? Um, well, I grew up in, uh, I was born in Durban. So we had a pretty steep hill on the bluff coming down um, that we used to use. And then I moved to Joburg probably when we were about seven or eight i think i moved up here lived here for a bit then uh i lived in europe for a couple of years came back lived in dubai for five years and then came back here again and i've been back here for about five years wow we've got some fun stuff to navigate through this interview uh i'm curious though did you win i mean those races down the hill no not really one of the things about being big is um the laws of physics don't apply so i ride mountain bikes a lot now going up hills you're at a disadvantage but going downhill not necessarily but i had some pretty spectacular crashes that's for sure so you you say big uh you know put our listeners into the picture here i mean he's taller than me i'm about what uh <laughs> i'm just shy six feet what are we working with here i'm six foot three and 110 kilograms <laughs> not a small guy <laughs> no, and that's why on a mountain bike we certainly feel it. I see. And where are all those kids now? Are you in touch with any of them? Did any of them um, remain friends with you through through the years? No, kind of. I mean, on Facebook, you know, we have to sort of now categorize friends into friends and Facebook friends. You know, so I think you could probably say I'm friends with a few of them on Facebook. But yeah, it was a long time ago. And what hasn't changed about that that kid? Well, even on the mountain biking. So I've. Uh, had a couple of surgeries of late from breaking things and it's still about pushing the limits trying to do things as fast as you can and as hard as you can and still not learning that uh, you know um, doing stupid things hurt and i'm told you love sailing among other things uh, fishing motocross what kind of sailing um, pretty much anything with a sail. So kiteboarding. I used to sail when we lived in Dubai. I used to do a lot of racing on multi-hulls. So we used to do double-handed stuff, um, particularly the um, Muscat race. We used to go from Dubai to, to Muscat, which was pretty cool with just two of us. Um, but yeah, anything with a sail, you know, even a little Hobie or a little laser all the way up to big things. So if it's got a sail, I'm, I'm there. That takes it way past being a hobby, I think. Yeah. No, well, it. It becomes a lifestyle. So my, my ultimate thing is, is taking a, a boat out into the water, you know, keeping the sails, not racing, just slow enough that your lures stay in the water and you go out and, uh, and fish from the back of a yacht. It's about as good as it gets. And what's the biggest thing you've caught? I've caught a few marlin. So we do, we do that from time to time. It's really dangerous. No, 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 no. It's not dangerous. I've seen, I've seen those YouTube clips, man. People get killed doing that thing. Well, when we fish, we don't take the fish out the water. So we'll bring it up alongside the boat. You'll take a photo of it, um, take the, the hook out, and then revive it, make sure it's good to go, and we put it back again. We don't take them out the water. But Kenya, Sedwana, those places, um, there's good marlin fishing in the, in the right time of year. Oh, I see. Yes, because a lot of the injuries happen when people are 
trying to get them out of the water and get speared and that kind of thing. Crazy stuff. Well, and then motocross. Uh, look, uh, motocross is, de- I don't care what you tell me, really dangerous. Um, I can't imagine the board at, at Ruckus is a fan of that hobby. Well, a lot of us um, do, it, it's mainly mountain biking now. So I've stopped racing and, and riding motorcycles because it, it was becoming problematic with injuries. And, uh, you know, it's it's difficult because I travel so much trying to walk through airports with your leg in a cast. So now it's just mountain bikes. I follow it a lot. I go and watch. I, st- I still enjoy it, but I'm not actually riding or competing anymore. I'm sure your insurance company is very depressed <laughs> at that change in lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. And and also when you're at the hospital, you're not having to make up reasons as to why you got injured. <laughs> my wife did it no kidding (laughs) yeah something exactly like that yeah and it's normally i was trying to get something off a shelf and i fell off the chair while i fell off a step ladder and and you're in motocross gear yes well that's what i do to protect myself or you can just skip hospitals and stuff yeah (laughs) well listen let's go back to that little kid right what were your influences growing up in durban um so i was also one of those kids that um uh, i guess you could have you know at, at that point I was going to be a half engineer. I was very inquisitive. I like to take things apart, but um, I was a little bit lacking on the putting them back together again. We always had extra parts and pieces left over. So, you know, I always had that inquisitive nature to try and figure out how things work and, and you know, sort of the makeup of it. Even with motorcycles, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to develop our own exhaust pipes and we would play with things in order to try and make things go faster and um so that yeah that's been something that's always interested me and so how did that upbringing influence what you would later study at varsity and that kind of thing or was there any was there any relation at all or did you have to sort of shut one side of who you were down in order to do something more practical more useful in the world i don't know so surprisingly i probably around high school i actually wanted to be a chef it's just a pity that you know in those days chefs are not kind of the celebrities that they are now after school i went into the army and then uh i studied refrigeration and air conditioning and uh you know i kind of had uh plans on going to work in the middle east because you're kind of going that's a really good place to do it and um, I did that for a little bit and found I, I didn't really enjoy it. So I spent a lot of time, you know, when I had ideas of working in the Middle East in a really nice place in fancy hotels, I ended up doing up a lot of work in, in freezers and abattoirs, and it really wasn't that nice. And I played around with computers and things, and it kind of just evolved from there. So it's not like there was ever a plan. Uh, I just kind of naturally progressed into into a particular area. And now you've worked in the field of IT for 23 odd years, correct? Yeah, I started off as a, you know, computer technician before we had um, Apple and, you know, things were still uh, all even before Windows NT, so sort of Novell days. So I kind of used to look after networks, the sort of the typical PC repair guy, and then moved on on from that to sort of a slight management role in it, then got more involved in the sales side and then kind of progressed into what I'm doing today. And so at which point did you move to the Middle East, to, to Dubai? This is after high school? Oh, no, no, no. That was, I'd been working here for quite a bit. So probably about 11 years ago, we moved over to, to Dubai. I was consulting at the time, and uh, I had a contract working with, uh, with CellC. And a um, company approached me and said, would you be interested in trying to, to do some telco business for us in, in Dubai? And I thought, seemed like a good idea at the time. We'll do it for a year or two. And I stayed there for five years. Uh, you're married, yes? Two kids? I am married, two kids, um, both teenagers. So there's nothing that you can teach them. They know it all already. <laughs> well, look, I interviewed a female CEO of a large firm in, in Australia a while ago. She's a mother of three. And at the time of the interview, she was you know, pretty much ready to pop with, with, their, with their fourth. And I asked her how she managed to hold everything together. And, and you know her response? Well, surprised me she she told me how curious she found it that male execs never got asked that question and and i think she makes a a great point uh and so in the interest of equal opportunity uh, i'm gonna ask you how you balance home life with with what must be an incredibly busy business schedule are you a great hubby my wife travels quite a lot for work as well so we we take turns to look after the kids when the other one's away when my wife is away all the rules that we have when she's here go out the window. We can eat in front of the television. We can drink milk out straight out of the bottle. We can drink orange juice out of the bottle. You can eat a sandwich without plates and you're allowed to eat in front of the television. 
and then we deal with it when she gets back. <laughs> and I was going to ask you, are you away so much, given, given how um, your role extends across sub-Saharan Africa, are you away so much that your kids forget who you are, but then you've got teenagers, they probably don't care what you look like anymore. Yeah, they, they, they keep in touch with me regularly, but it normally it involves, Dad, I need some money for this, or Dad, I need some money for that. But we use... You know, I was in the U.S. about two weeks ago, and my daughter was on a school tour in Europe. WhatsApp calling, she can speak to me, and we're all able to communicate with each other in real time, and it's reasonably inexpensive. And are there any lessons you can draw from what's, I think, your your most time-consuming hobby at the moment, which is uh, mountain biking? Are there any sort of lessons you can draw from mountain biking that are directly applicable to your being a parent? Yeah, I think um, mountain bikes hurt and so do children. <laughs> and and they both cost an enormous amount of money. No, I think it's, it's more just a case of... of um, you know, with the mountain biking now, know your limits, know what you can do, know what you can't do. And I think with my children, my approach has always been I try to allow them to make the right decisions. And, and my sort of mantra with them is before they go out, as I'll say, make reasonable choices. I don't even say make good choices, just make reasonable choices. And I try to, you know, at the end of the day, you can always pull rank, but you always go, well, think about what you're asking. And if you still think it's a really good idea to do that, then you can do it, but I would like you just to think it through. And most times you'll get the right um, decision out of them if you allow them to make it themselves. That sounds pretty much directly applicable to, to business as well, I suppose, if you think yeah. about it. Yeah, you, you, you know, um, with the way I manage people as well, I try to be hands-off. I try to empower people to make their own decisions and, you know, to do stuff on their own. And I think it probably, you know, the same goes over to with, with my kids. And before you tell me about Ruckus Wireless, that is correct. Though, am, I, am I saying it right, Ruckus? Yeah, absolutely. Let's let's fill in the blanks of some of the you know parts of your professional history. And now I have some idea of what high school looked like. You must have been that awkward kid, uh, much taller than everyone else <laughs> in, the, in the in the yearbook. Um, you love to pull pull things apart. You you know walk your way through you know fixing fridges and find your way to computers and they turn you on. Talk us through, you know, some of your more recent career choices. After all that self-discovery, highlights, uh, people, places, uh, things that influenced you, people that would influence the the leader you've become. Before Ruckus, I worked uh, for Motorola and uh, I had a boss at Motorola and um, he, um, you know, when doing business in Africa, it's quite difficult to forecast with the accuracy that most American companies want. They want you to have everything very linear, try and keep it within 2%. In Africa, it's really hard. So, you know, I would often say is if, if you can predict which country is going to have the next coup or where there's going to be some famine, if you can do that with that amount of accuracy, then I think we can follow. But one of the things, he, he also very much left us on our own to do our own things. And he was going, if you miss your number, Miss Big. If you miss it by 2%, then he would always show us the video from that movie with Al Pacino uh, on any Sunday when he spoke about how you have... Any given Sunday. Any given Sunday, yeah, where you have to claw your way for the last two inches and you add up those. And that was his thing is if you miss by 2%, then it's like you didn't try hard enough. If you miss it by 50%, then we can say something went wrong. And, And he was really instrumental in... Me kind of growing as a as a as a manager on someone you know developing business in Africa in the telco space something which is is quite difficult because I went from a product development role where I was kind of very much um, you know working with the product management guys and the salespeople to going out into Africa and and um, you know meeting telcos for the first time so I'd worked for telcos and now I was selling to telcos and tell me about Belkin and what you did there. Belkin wanted someone to develop um, a product for for telcos. So, you know, where you would have a a product that you would try and get the telcos to buy and use for home use. Belkin was very good at packaging, you know, which is why they've done so well in in the iPhone accessory space. What Belkin wanted was for a carrier to have a product that was in a very nice box but didn't have all the features that they wanted. As a consumer product, you know, they have all the the right blue lights and they talk about things in completely nebulous terms like this can go 2x faster and it goes 4x further. It doesn't mean anything, 
but it's got lots of fancy blue lights and you know as a consumer that's what you want i mean kettles now have got blue leds on them does, does it mean anything does it boil water any better i mean i've seen kettles now that can boil six different temperatures and you set your water temperature if you want green tea like does it really make a difference but yeah so that was it, it was a it was an interesting experience working for balkan but there wasn't a great fit as in what they wanted carriers to use and what they were prepared to sell them were two completely different things tell me how intentional you building your career on the african continent has been uh, and how much of it has been uh, a case of opportunity sort of leading you back home as it were <laughs> yeah good question um I, I guess i mean you know i could say there was a lot of brilliant strategy and all of that but there was an awful amount of serendipity involved you know when when i left belkin i joined another company we were doing um sim cards and um the whole sort of ancillary services into carriers I mean, I'd worked with carriers in a couple of the local ones, and it was pretty easy because people do business with people. So, you know, all you're doing is, hey, by the way, um, this is now what I'm doing. And so it was pretty easy to – I think those two positions with, with, with Belkin and the other one kind of set me up for the, the role that I took on at, uh, at Motorola because, you know, once we got to Motorola, pretty serious company, um, good product, and, you know, quite a, quite a broad broad reach and you know trying to sell it right across africa rather than a few specific countries right now tell me about uh, ruckus wireless uh, founded in 2004 listed on the new york stock exchange are the company's founders still involved in the business they were up until very recently so it was started by two guys victor strom and bill kish uh, one a mathematician other one a, a, an rf guy and they came up with this uh, product back in 2004. So, and they used to, when it started, it was moving video between set-top boxes. So, you know, kind of people living in Palo Alto and very expensive areas want lots of LED screens. And guy arrives with a massive drilling machine to drill a hole in your wall. And they kind of go, no, no, we need to have some wireless thing to do that. And that's what they were doing. So, you know, way back in 2004, they were doing video over the air and... and that sort of moved into the telco space, so you know, with uh, a lot of the guys in, in in Europe, and then probably a bit later they were going, we've got this amazing technology, and we're not playing in the enterprise space, and then uh, we sort of made the move over into you know going into the enterprise space to compete with the with the big guys, and then uh, probably four years ago we um, stepped further into the carrier space with a service provider and you know, kind of carrier-grade Wi-Fi. We had less than 100 people when I joined, and we're now pretty much 1,000 people. And how long has Ruckus had a formal presence on the continent, and in which countries? So I joined Ruckus five years ago. So in fact, July, was it was it was five years, and I was kind of employee number one here. We've been here for five years. We're now probably eight or nine people in, in South Africa, we we have an office now. We, we we'll we'll have our phones working one of these days because we've got about four different people involved in the process. So, um, but yeah, we've we, we've got a few people now, and then the next wave of expansion for 2016 will be to put some people actually in other parts of Africa to try and grow it as well. So we've we've had good growth. We've had some some really nice customers and some good projects. That's my next question. You know, tell me a little bit about what the team looks like, uh, what went into how you, comp you know, what sort of composition formula you used to put it together, and you know what your clients, uh, who your clients are, and, and where they are. What's really cool about Ruckus is um, the the culture of the company. I mean, our our logo is a barking dog with the and the waves from the bark are like the little Wi-Fi symbols. So it's it's very uncorporate and and I think you know now that we're a thousand people we've got a lot more rules and regulations and and we've become very corporatey but we've kind of had that very much the you know we're disruptive we're going to go out and 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 we're going to take on people that many would say that we would never be able to succeed with and but there's a refreshing amount of 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 honesty with with Ruckus so if we went into a particular project. And the customer said they wanted to do this. And, and an example being they wanted to do a, a rugby stadium. And the customer would say, well, vendor X says they can do this with five access points. And we would go, well, we can't. And if you want five access points, then you need to go with, with vendor X. 
we are going to tell you what you need to do it and that's how many access points you need and if we can't do it we'd rather walk away so we've got guys you know our engineering guys are, are very solid very good we've got i think we've got three pre-sales guys based in Joburg. we've got one of the guys um, who works on our post sales team based in port elizabeth he does global support for us all over so one of our big carrier customers somewhere has a problem ryan's the guy that will sort it out we've got a consulting engineer based here that also travels around um you know recently in croatia for that and then we've got a few salespeople that look after look after different territories by the sounds of it uh you don't follow uh the teams aren't necessarily set up to service the geographical locations that they sort of reside in is that is that right at the moment, that is the case. So we've got a guy based here who looks after South Africa alone. We've another guy who looks after the SADC region for us, you know, which also extends into East Africa. Um, I still look after West Africa, so we will look to put someone into West Africa in 2016. And um, so we, we, yeah, we, we we've got a geographic split, but people aren't based there yet. Um, that's our next wave, you know, next wave of expansion when we will do that. And what sort of goals do you have as an organization in terms of, you know, in terms of business and, and in terms of growth? Um, so, you know, we, yeah, an, an interesting question. So w when you work for American companies, um, you're just expected to grow quarter on quarter. And as long as you keep going, growing quarter on quarter, you're doing okay. And you're always only as good as your last quarter. Um, we're trying to actively recruit new um, partners. And I mean, value-added resellers. And we're trying to add, you know, quality ones to to work with us. We're doing a lot in the in the education space as well. So, you know, the last probably six months have been very much an education thing to, you know, try and talk to end customers to to get them to understand that, you know, you, you find something in a in a retail store that you can buy for, you know, five hundred bucks. It's not the same thing as what the enterprise wireless land vendors are selling. They're, you know, completely different things. So we've spent a lot of time educating people on that. And the same with VARs, you know, to try and get them to do the the required certification so that they can do the surveys and things properly so that you know the, the end customer ends up with a great experience we, we've had a lot of trouble in kenya with guys very focused on price so if we said to do a particular hotel you need 27 access points the var would say they can do it with 13 and the customer is going to go with 13 because it costs less but then they don't get the same performance that what's a var a value-added reseller. I see. So it, it almost sounds like part of your model is to infuse uh, entrepreneurially-minded uh, technical specialists to build businesses around what it is you do or sell it down downstream. Yeah, and, and what we want is we want our resellers to do quality work, and because if if it's not done correctly, it'll it'll come back, you know, to um, affect our reputation in the marketplace. So we're we're going. Um, ahead really aggressively with training to try and get as many of them trained as possible i mean we've done free training we've done a we recently did a training course where we said you know come on and do the training it's free the certification's free and we'll draw one name out of a hat and we'll give you the latest greatest wave 2 11 ac access point and we made a whole lot of um, ruckus caps we had a whole lot of these made up but they they're not your regular corporate ones. They flat peak, flex fit, you know, with a ruckus dog on them. So you've got to finish the course if you want to get one of these caps. So we're kind of creating a little bit of a gangster culture out there. <laughs> Some swag. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, I was, I'm, I'm going to ask you now, um, and I think I've gotten a sense of some of the elements of what I'd consider your competitive adva advantage to be. Who would you consider your major competition uh, globally and on the continent? What is the mainstay of business in terms of revenue on the continent? We need to split it into enterprise and, and carrier space. So in the enterprise space, Cisco is, is really dominant. I think their market share is close to 50%. Um, next is uh, is Aruba HP. And then next is us. So we're coming in with, I think, around 8% on the, on the last um, um, data that I looked at. On the carrier side, it's a little bit different. So Ruckus has got around 40% uh, and ahead of Cisco. 
So Cisco's probably down to mid thirties now. Uh, so you aren't the underdog, surely, with those kind of numbers. And are you talking? Uh, are these African numbers or global numbers? Th- these are global numbers. It's quite hard to extract them for you know for for Africa and and for Middle East and Africa because um, it's just split into one number. So you know it it it's quite it's quite hard for us to extract that. I think in some regions you'd find there would be a little bit higher and, you know, in other ones uh, a, a little bit lower. So, you know, in Kenya, we we do very well in Kenya as well. So, but in the carrier space, you know, globally, we, we've got some pretty big projects and, uh, you know, we're doing really well. And I think if you look at it in terms of stadiums as well, we don't have the numbers for stadiums in terms of the market share, but... You know, particularly after the last Soccer World Cup, Brokers did a lot of stadiums um, over in uh, in South America. So that's market share. But in terms of revenue, where are you guys making your money, at least most of it? In Africa, it's probably a 50-50 split. So enterprise and service provider, um, that's probably where, you know, where we are stacked up. We're taking a quick break to remind you of Audible's pretty awesome offer to you, a listener of the African Tech Conversations podcast. They're offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Personally, I recommend The Lean Startup, written and narrated by Eric Reese. It's a great listen, but you can pretty much download any audiobook of your choice for free by trying audible.com. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash africantech. That's audibletrial.com slash africantech. So give me an example of enterprise, an enterprise client and an enterprise carrier, a typical carrier, client, customer, potential or real. So enterprise for us would be, it's, there's a few different verticals, but a school, a university would be an enterprise customer um, for us, you know, warehousing and logistics. So there's a few of, of them around. And then your typical, you know, you have an office and you need to put Wi-Fi in it. So those are typically, you know, your, your enterprise customers. And on the service provider side, you know, it's people like Vast Networks, um, the you know, merger of Internet Solutions and MWeb. They're a customer. Project to Seasware, City of Trani, you know, they would be service provider, uh, stroke carrier customers for us. So now asking that question I sort of asked <laughs> in a roundabout way earlier, uh, what would you say your competitive edge is at Ruckus? Uh, given you know the 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 market share splits you described the pitch i normally give in it and it's not a very technical one is we have something called beamflex that uh, victor and bill started and the example i always give is because we all have silicon that's either made by qualcomm or theros or morvel or whoever it is everyone starts with the baseline the same and then they put antennas on it so everybody else the antenna is like a normal light bulb so if I put a light bulb on the table and I turned it on, the light just goes wherever the light can go. You can't make it move unless you move something in the room or you make the light bulb move. Um, what what Victor and Bill did with Beamflex is th- they have the same amount of power in the light, but it's made up of a whole lot of different LEDs. So if you imagine it's a it's a it's it's made up of a whole lot of mag light LEDs, you can make that beam go wider and you can make it go narrower and you can turn it off and you can turn it on. So if I wanted the light to go under a table, for example, by manipulating the beams, it's quite possible I could actually get the light to go under the table because it works out to about 4,000 different permutations and we could probably get one of them to go under the table. But what that means is when we start to do high-density deployments, and I know you know we've got data sheets and there's a very interesting um, article on our blog called Why All Vendors Lie – but you've got the marketing brochures where everyone says, you know, an access point can do 512 concurrent connections. Um, in South Africa, we've had a, a, a project where we had 388 concurrent clients connected on a single access point. And I know testing that they did over in the U.S., it was in excess of 450. So when we say you can actually do the things that our marketing brochures take, it actually comes pretty close to doing it. Now, if you're doing, you know, um, Wi-Fi in a, in a in a smart city like in, in Chwani, for example, there's some pretty decent throughput and you're going to have a whole lot of people congregating underneath a, a, a street pole to get access to the Wi-Fi. If it suddenly times out at 27 or 30, you're not quite sure how many. It becomes quite difficult to manage. And when people can't connect, 
they, you know, if you're using a different vendor, they're not particularly going to say, oh, well, the problem is this vendor's equipment. They're going to go project to sees where your stuff doesn't work. So where we have tested it in high density, like where we did the, the opening of parliament, I mean, you know, massive high density deployments when um, President Obama was in, uh, in Kenya, no, but he was somewhere else before. Uh, was, it, was he in Uganda? Ethiopia. He was in Ethiopia. So we had to put or send a whole lot of Wi-Fi access points up to the United Nations for it. And, you know, they had 8,000 people there. So that fundamentally is, is the reason why we are doing as well as we are in the carrier space because it's a very reliable service that the carriers can give to their customers. So having said that, you know, let me into your business development cycle. And I'm particularly interested in how you develop business on the continent. Talk me through what it takes to sell someone on the proposition you just described? So for us, the, the easiest way to convince a customer that um, our product does what it says it does is to get it in their hands and let them try it. So we, we try and make it very easy for resellers to get um, demo kits. The problem we often have is we'll, we'll put stuff in at an end customer and then they don't want to give it back. And then it turns to, okay, this really works. Um, just give us an invoice. And we say, well, we can't really do that because we've got serial numbers. And But for us, um, you know, it's the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If you go out or actually deploy it and test it and, and use it, we pretty much won the battle right there. We were actually, what we're doing is uh, for uh, part of our whole new office is we've, we've got some stickers made up for our access points. And it's uh, it's going to be they're going to be done in bright orange, and we're putting a big sticker on it to say that the the great guys at Ruckus Wireless lent us some access points because we're too cheap to buy our own. It's <laughs> cheeky, yeah. So so that way we'll go is all you've got to do is just unplug it and put in your new ones, and then we're good to go. <laughs> cheeky. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, this concern over the economic sluggishness in China, you know, that's currently affecting global business and totally affecting life on the African continent. Infrastructure is going to take a huge knock. We all know that China is financing a lot of infrastructure uh, here on the continent. How how do you expect what's going on in, in, in the macro sense of things globally to affect your business, uh, the listing in New York and the business here in the in Africa? What we're going to see is when you're in a in a declining economy, the only way, well, so, you know, if you want to continue to make, uh, what's the term that's used, to unlock shareholder value, you either have to sell more or you have to cost less or you have to do a combination of them. So in the mining industry, it becomes a case of operational efficiencies. How can we do what we were currently doing but make it cost less. Um, so you're seeing a lot more mechanization coming into the mining industry, and that all needs communications. In oil and gas, it's all about communications. In warehousing and logistics, every time one of those big stackers that has to pick up a container and put it down, every time it can't connect to the Wi-Fi network, everything stops, and it's now starting to calculate what the cost of that stoppage is in terms of the bottom line. We will see um, you know, a lot of people looking to, to use Wi-Fi more effectively as a means of trying to improve operational efficiencies. I mean, we've even seen it inside cold storage, so where we've been putting access points inside big giant fridges um, you know, for people to go and pick things uh, with a little bit more accuracy. We're fortunate that we've got a product that can work at, at those temperatures. It's almost like what must have happened, uh, the spike that must have occurred in life raft manufacture after the Titanic almost. Yeah, absolutely. And But you even seen, I mean, you know, um, telcos now and, and um, you know, MNOs are for the first time reporting a drop in revenue. And I mean, you know, that's that's kind of been unheard of. We've sort of seen, you know, the... Um, profit margins and all of that decline. But I think recently, for the first time, we've actually seen them, you know, talking about a drop in, in actual revenue. Um, so even, you know, with the carrier customers, they would look to gain to operational efficiencies because it's no secret. It's cheaper to deploy a Wi-Fi access point than to do, you know, deploy a, a cellular one. So, and now with Wi-Fi calling, I mean, we've seen one of them launch it here. That has to go on Wi-Fi. So... <laughs> We actually just covered in our sister podcast, the African Tech uh, Roundup, uh, we just covered Vodacom's recent 
countrywide rollout of voice over wi-fi gonna ask you a little later on but we might as well since we're here uh what you think of that as as a trend i mean some of the some of the detractors of this innovation they're calling it and they're really excited about are saying well skype's been around for a while well thank you for coming to the party but in a in a sort of broader sense what do you think this is signaling to to as a trend as a broader trend so you know we've had the um when the licenses were granted, you know, way back when, um, it came with a certain amount of, um, I'm not quite sure of the right term, social component where you had to do rural deployments. And then we had the USOLs that came out, which was also very unsuccessful. And I, and I think the conclusion that can be drawn is it's just not profitable to deploy Wi-Fi or to deploy connectivity in rural areas. It, it's just not cost-effective. So, I mean, with what Vodacom's done, I think, um, you know, as a consumer, it doesn't cost me any less. But in my office, I can't use my cell phone. There's no cellular reception. So it solves a problem in that I can use my cell phone. Unfortunately, I'm not a Vodacom customer. But if I was, I could still make Wi-Fi calls um, using my cell phone. You know, from a carrier perspective, it's a whole lot cheaper because you can use your access point that you have at home to, to, to make a call. So there's no cost benefit to the consumer, but you're you're plugging a lot of the holes where there's where there's um, gaps in the coverage. Um, T-Mobile in the U.S. is doing something interesting. So it doesn't reduce your voice minutes. So and most of the T-Mobile packages now are all you can eat. You know, you give them a certain amount of money per month, and they will give you a certain um, cap which you can use on their 4G and LTE network. And then once you're through that, then they just throttle you. But their Wi-Fi calling doesn't come off your off your minutes. So what's also interesting is Google launched a phone recently, um, Android One, or was it? Uh, yeah, that was uh, this week as well. Well, in the you know very recently at least. But um, and I think it's um, about eighty-five dollars for a eighty-nine, I think. Yeah, for a smartphone. And, uh, you know, so now if you take a resident of, of Trani, uh who've got the free Wi-Fi calling app, so it's free if you want to phone the city, but it's also free if you phone each other. Now, you know, from my perspective, if, if you're a, a mobile network operator, one of your customers calling another one of your customers off the same base station, your cost is practically nothing. Um, I understand if it has to transit the network, of course, there's a cost to doing that. But if it's off the same base station, there's practically no cost. So you will see, and, you know, South Africans are quite resourceful when it comes to being thrifty. Um, you know, if you look at the numbers that a lot of the cell phone companies put out, if you add up the number of active numbers they've got, we have a lot of people living in this country or a lot of people have got at least three SIM cards. So you're probably going to see as more of the metro start to deploy Wi-Fi and and introduce Wi-Fi calling, um, it's probably going to take away um, some of that revenue from the cell phone companies. Yes, you see, but we're discussing this outside of the context of everything else that's happening, uh, i.e. free Wi-Fi, and making the assumption that most people making calls on their cell phones in a Wi-Fi zone will do it on their network to start with. Most people would do it on, say, WhatsApp or on Skype anyway. So isn't this a little too little too late from, from, the, mobile tel- from the mobile operators? Yes, I think it is. I mean, um, you know, WhatsApp calling coming out, um, you know, and we've been doing it on Skype for a long time. I mean, in our office where we are, I mean, I can use Link, I can use Skype, I can use WhatsApp, and they all work, you know, relatively efficiently. I think it's it's there's still a market for it. I mean, if you go to a stadium now, you, you can't make a phone call. So that has to be done on Wi-Fi. Uh, whereas stadiums, unfortunately, only get used maybe 20 times a year. So it's pretty expensive to deploy. And I think there's still some value there because you, you want to not decrease your voice minutes, but try and do it more cost effectively. So I think, you know, guys that have deployed big Wi-Fi networks in South Africa, there's definitely some roaming agreements that are going to be coming. <laughs> in the not-too-distant future. And your thoughts on projects like internet.org and uh, Facebook's recent uh, uh, 737 span with a uh, wingspan with um, things that are going to fly above sort of, uh, you know, jetline-type uh, altitudes uh, to provide internet uh, access to places that you just said, you know, can't be serviced, you know, effectively with, with you know, in, in traditional means or traditional infrastructural means, what, what sort of conversations are things like that causing people at Rutgers to have? So the, I think they're very good projects. So um, 
you know, Microsoft's involved in some very cool things uh, as well in Africa, and, you know, with their, their different projects. So you've got Facebook, Google, Microsoft, and it's how do we connect the, the next billion people? Now, although it's, it's a, appearing as though it's all being done for altruistic reasons, it, it probably isn't. But, you know, if by doing that in order to try and sell more services, more advertising, more apps, it's allowing some people that never had access to the internet before to suddenly get 250, two and a half gig for free. You know, I, I think that's a very good thing. But, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at all the different technologies. I mean, the TV white space stuff that, uh, you know, has been uh, around for a bit. I've heard the Google Loon project actually did something live in uh, in Sri Lanka recently. But then they also fell out of the sky <laughs> somewhere else, so... And I think, yeah, you know, as, as, as long as people are trying to develop that, you know, in order to provide connectivity to, to people that don't have it already and maybe to reduce the costs, um, I think it's a good thing. And, and isn't that where most of the revenue potential, at least, you know, forecasting 10, 20 years, isn't that where most of that revenue potential is? And if your answer to that question is yes, do you have a secret project out in the Kalahari or in the Sahara somewhere uh, of your own that you're not telling us about? Well, we we think that the location services around the Wi-Fi thing is going to be a, a, a big part, um, you know, so with, with targeted advertising, that, that's going to that's gonna make a big difference, um, you know, to it. Um, are we working on any secret projects? I mean, we look at things all the time, but in terms of anything secret, I, I don't think there's anything that I'm aware of. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be secret anymore if you told me so. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, we just, um, you know, we, we've launched our Wave 2 uh, 11AC access point. Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing device, um, you know, but not necessarily going to help people in, in, in rural deployments. But, um, you know, we, we, we continue to do what we do. And sometimes our stuff gets deployed in regions where it helps people that never had access before. And, and that's pretty good. All right, so let's let's come back to you know you as a person. Um, are you entre- You sound entrepreneur. You sound entrepreneurial to me. Are you entrepreneurial at all? Um, and and by that I mean, do you invest in, advise, mentor, mentor startups outside of your uh, your role at Ruckus? I don't. I, I know at HQ, I mean, we've uh, you know we've made some good investments, and uh, you know they will continue to you know to to investigate things i mean me personally i just look after africa and uh you know we try and drive it but uh, i think at ruckus um you know it's it's certainly encouraged to kind of have an entrepreneurial flair to the way that we do things so you know as i said we we haven't quite become completely corporatized you know you still have an element of freedom to do things in creative ways and when I say creative, I don't mean like from a bribe point of view because it's Africa, but sometimes you need to do things a little bit differently and, you know, we're allowed to do that. But I've had, as I said, I've come from both sides. I've run my own business for some time. I've worked for carriers on the product development side and, you know, now I'm working for a vendor selling back to carriers again. And that's a beautiful segue into my next question, which is how does public policy affect your business and how involved does Ruckus get in influencing policymakers? So we have a, I mean... As an American company, very strict policy. We subscribe to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And if it's dipping into the naughty jaw, we don't go there. So it's, you know, um, Iran is about to, to open up as a, as a market for all American companies. All of them are poised, you know, busy recruiting. And, you know, with us, it's until it's official, you know, doesn't matter how many times we'll get someone coming to us from Eastern Europe saying they, you know, want to look at a large project that's happening in the Middle East. We're going, if it's Iran, we're not going to do business there until we're allowed to. So as I said before, you know, honesty, integrity when it comes to doing a network design, the same thing when it comes to doing business. It's uh, it's all legit and above board. And is there pressure on this region? And when I say the region, I mean Africa as a whole to deliver huge results in order to bolster what may be, you know, pressure elsewhere in the group? So the the, the high growth areas, if you look at all the um, all analysts, the, you know, that do the predictions on what they see happening, the high growth areas are going to be um, Middle East, Africa, and, and Eastern Europe, and, and parts of Asia. So China's obviously going to be on a little bit of a slowdown, but, you know, other, other parts of Asia – 
and that's where you know we're hoping to get some good growth um, going forward. I mean, Africa. The the reason why you know we expect good growth in Africa is because of the lack of infrastructure. Um, it's just not there. And so let's go back to this public Wi-Fi trend. Um, you mentioned that you're involved with Project Isizwe. Where do you see yourselves in that trend in terms of being part of it, and you know, for lack of a better term, you know, crudely speaking, profiting from it as it sort of sweeps the the globe. So we, I mean, with the, the, the public Wi-Fi stuff, I mean, it's come down from, from a lot of testing. We're, you know, very involved from a development point of view to make sure that um, we've got all the interoperability um, issues covered. But we, you know, we price the product very aggressively because it's a, a service that's being, being offered and no one's making money out of it yet. Um, so at the moment, someone pays in order to give someone a service for free, and accordingly, we, we, we price the product there. Down the line, you know, if you look at a lot of the, the smart cities and things that people have done, they all start off being free, which means government pays for it, and, you know, they give a service for it. But, um, you know, particularly with the location-based services, uh, with what's happening in San Jose, you know, they're now connecting the parking meters to the Wi-Fi, uh, cost saving associated with doing it, and there's just more and more that you can, you know, you can put onto it. With two-way radios now becoming completely Wi-Fi enabled, and you can use tracking on the two-way radios, so you know it's uh, it it just opens up a whole new world of reducing costs upstream in order to try and save on the public Wi-Fi. And what do you make of this feeding frenzy that's currently happening in Africa's mobile money scene? Um, is Ruckus involved there? No, we we won't actually be involved. We just provide the platform. So you know, I kind of say to people, typically we're an Ethernet cable that you can't see. So you know, if it will, if it's an, an an application that will work, I mean, we we do something similar for you know for our service providers. We've got an app called Swipe. So if you've got an access point def- deployed on a telephone pole, you go up to it, you take a photo of it. If you can scan the serial number, you scan it. That'll work from an iPhone or from an Android device, and then you just sync it, and it will coordinate everything so everyone knows where it is. So when it comes to getting an access point on board and working, you know, out in the field, it just makes it so much easier. Right. Uh, I'm going to ask you to put on, you know, to pretend you are at the head of one of the larger telcos on the continent, and um, I'm picking on them because I feel some of the innovations we're talking about in ICT probably affect them the most, and I feel. Uh, and, and many of my colleagues feel similarly that their models are outdated and they need to think very quickly how they can they can adapt. Uh, which models do you think currently being clung to within ICT and telco, mobile telco especially, do you think are going to bite the dust in the next five years? Well, I, I think um, I like to look at Safaricom as, a, as an example for doing innovative things, um, you know, on the African continent. Bearing in mind, they started in PESA, you know, way back when, and they've done some really good things. I, I think, um, you know, when we were at the Wireless uh, Innovation Summit recently, they were talking about, you know, declining revenues, um, you know, for, for the telcos. But instead, so one of the reasons why, and, and my humble opinion, why Wi-Fi hasn't been deployed as rapidly by the carriers in Africa is because it means... Um, by giving people another option, it's reducing the data revenues which they're currently getting, and I think the data revenues are are quite high. So if you look, if you're in the U.S., you can have an account with T-Mobile for sixty dollars. You can get, you know, all you can eat data, and here that is is not going to happen. We're playing, paying significantly more. So if you look at a, an organization like AT&T in North America and you know for part of that um, Safaricom's done something similar they've ventured a lot more into managed wireless LAN services so instead of just providing a data circuit to an organization they're going we'll put in all the Wi-Fi we'll put in everything and we'll give it all to you as a managed service and I don't think that part of it uh, here or in other parts of Africa has been that rapid to happen you know five years ago the carriers were making great money data revenue was awesome but you know we and i oft, often ask the question as well is someone that goes abroad is only ever going to leave data roaming on their phone once you will never ever make that mistake ever again and you know wi-fi gives you the option to not make the the same uh, amounts of money but at the moment 
most people when you're traveling you wait until you turn wi-fi on so the carriers are getting nothing and you know whereas the approach could be well do it with wi-fi you would make something but you know at at, at least you're making something from four or five million people rather than a v an insane amount of money from three and it's a, s a situation of um uh, uh you know doing good being good for business essentially and you know what it's uh it's good news because uh, it's all downhill from here um what's your favorite dessert I'm not really a a, um, a sweet person, so but if I had to pick a dessert, it would probably be some kind of sorbet sorbet ice cream. Um, that would that would definitely be my weakness. And where was the last place you took your wife out for dinner? I took her the last time we went out for dinner. I took her to a place in New York um, called Sweet Chicks, uh, which is one of the more famous places for chicken and waffles which sounds like a horrendous combination, but everyone should eat it once. So it's fried chicken with waffles and maple syrup. Surprisingly good. No judgment here. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, there's a place in, in, in Bromfontein that does it. It's called Mr. Mr. Big or something like that. If you haven't tried chicken and waffles, you have to try it once. Okay, and then are you into podcasts? And if so, what are you listening to right now? Um. The podcast that I listen to quite frequently is called There's No Such Thing as a Fish, and it's done by the people that do all the research for QI, and uh, they've got their own little show going, and they give you interesting, non-relevant facts about stuff, and I find when I'm traveling, that's what I listen to. I'm going to insist that you add three more to your iTunes list, which is, of course, this this this, this very podcast, The African Tech Conversations. Uh, um, African Tech Roundup, which is weekly, and of course my podcast, um, uh, Andy Les Take. And if you don't, I'll send people for you. <laughs> I'll do that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so the last question, uh, is there anything I haven't asked that you wish I had? No, not really. I think we've, uh, we've pretty much covered it. And that's the first time I haven't been asked something <laughs> when I asked that question, so... Well, the thing is, is most people, when you, they're going to ask you for some way to shamelessly plug their product, and uh, uh, that's not what we need to do. <laughs> no, and I thank you for that. Thank you so much for your time, Michael. Um, I know you're a busy man, and all the best to Ruckus. Yeah, and Delia, it's been fun. Thank you very much. We'd like to thank Audible.com for sponsoring this week's episode of African Tech Conversations. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, or MP3 player including my recommendation, The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial right now at audibletrial.com slash africantech. That's audibletrial.com slash africantech. Thank you for listening to African Tech Conversations. <laughs>